0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, we began uh, we began last night. We had our service, Christmas Eve service, and we began by um, making note of uh, that Christmas is a kind of a spiritual high water mark on the church's calendar. We noted that even non Christians carry around with them sort of a, an anticipation and thankfulness for Christmas, um, whether it's ceramic nativity scenes or Bible saturated hymns or capping. Our Christmas trees with little angels that remind us of, um, you know, the divine messengers who announced Messiah's birth. You know, believers and unbelievers alike know and incorporate many aspects of biblical details into their worship and celebration of Christmas. But if we're honest, it's for many of us it can fall into kind of a rut of joyful nostalgia and nothing more than that. Um, the world can treat Christmas. And believers can treat Christmas as little more than a decoration or a prop. All the, all the details of Christmas as a decoration or a prop in an otherwise sentimental celebration. And we, we wanted to help offset some of that through our study last night and again this morning. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, if you have one, and look with me at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We're, we're going to unpack um, some more details from this one short verse, Micah. Being an Old Testament prophet. And uh, we're going to go back to the beginning to understand one specific detail of Jesus' birth. And, you know, that we often treat, I think, as an accessory, a spiritual accessory to a sentiment, in our sentimental Christmas celebrations. We're going back to the beginning, to the place of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And as we uh, place this one detail within the bigger picture of human history, Um, I want you to be able to stand back this morning and say as we conclude our sermon that there is no one like our God and there is no one like his son, Jesus Christ. The concept of the kingdom of God, in a real sense, unifies, pulls together all of Scripture, all of it. It acts like a rope running from Genesis all the way through to Revelation we see the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We see the kingdom of God is presented with creation itself. God creates all things and he creates them good as God is the king of creation. He delegates humanity as his image bears to rule and subdue that creation. Genesis 1 verse 27, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it and rule over it. And so and so the first aspect of the scriptures is encompasses, in Genesis 1 and 2, creation. And then second, we see the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, man's failure to rule God's creation as he intended, both humanity and creation itself. The actual created order is plunged into sin and its devastating effects, and we see that in Genesis 3, 1 to 14. And then beginning in chapter 3 and verse 15 of Genesis 3 and all the way through to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi you could put all of that under the heading of promise promise God's promise guarantees that the seed of the woman the the offspring of the woman will eventually succeed over and the power of Satan serpent the serpent the curse of sin will be reversed and man again rules over creation as God intended. In fact, you see it in chapter 3, and verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise or crush you on the head, this is God speaking to Satan, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so there's this promise that there will be a final judgment that comes the fourth aspect of Scripture comes really from Matthew to Jude, and that is redemption. That, everything in those books could fall under the heading of redemption. Through his atonement at the cross, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, are the foundation for the kingdom and the future reconciliation of a people for himself. And really, a re- reconciliation of creation as a whole. In fact, when Jesus arrives on the scene in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, Now, after John had been in, uh, taken into custody, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, Repent and believe in the gospel. And then, fifth, you could trace in the book of Revelation, The restoration of all things. God's plan is fulfilled as Jesus successfully reigns over the earth, and then this kingdom merges into the kingdom of the Father in an eternal state. And in in a sense, you could say the entire book of Revelation describes how the kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdom of Satan. Revelation 11, verse 15, John writes, "...then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ." And he will reign forever and ever. And so you can summarize the entire storyline of the Bible into five parts. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, and restoration. The kingdom created becomes the kingdom fallen, which leads to the kingdom restored. And all of it, we said last night, is centered and anchored on Jesus as the Messiah. Every portion of scripture, like pieces in a puzzle, fits together to, uh, to unpack this picture, this divine revelation of redemptive history, each part contributing its own unique kind of image, if you will, to God's revelation and his kingdom plan. And Micah's part of that puzzle centers on the promise portion of God's kingdom plan. That's what we're looking at this morning. He looks back at the failure of God's people on account of their fallen and sinful hearts, and Micah also looks ahead to the promised redemption and restoration of all things on account of his future salvation. And if there's one thing you want to take away from the book of Micah, again, a lot of this is review for those of you who were here last night. If you want to take one thing away from the book of Micah, it is this, that there is no one like God, and there is no one like his son, Jesus Christ. God's absolute superiority and uniqueness, they shout at us in this book from every section of Micah's prophetic word, even the prophet he chose to deliver the message. That prophet's name, Micah, reminds us that there is no one else like God because his name means who is like God. But the theme isn't simply derived off of some kind of play of words, play play on words from Micah's name. It's stated explicitly in chapter 7 in verse 18. Micah writes, who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights, he delights in loving kindness. So Micah is indeed to bring this message that there is no one like God and he tolerates no counterfeits. Now, to understand the context, we didn't get into all this detail last night. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. They're preaching at the same time, in the same, in the same uh, general time frame. And they both preach, but they both preach in different contexts. Uh, Micah is a street preacher. Micah is, is, he's more John the Baptist in the wilderness than Paul on the Areopagus, preaching to the great philosophical thinkers in Athens. Micah is a street preacher, and he is a compelling one at that. And he begins his, his writing in chapter 1 by warning Israel... In Judah, that Yahweh's judgment is coming. You see that in verses 2 and 3. He says, Here, O peoples, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Here, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place, and he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. There is a judgment coming, and it's coming at the hand of God. And there is nothing about this judgment that's unfair. It is justified. In verse 5, he says, All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria and all of its false worship? What is the high place of Judah? And he says, Is it not Jerusalem, which is meant to be the center of the true worship of God, and it was corrupt? Micah tells them that God is going to take what they thought was their strength, their security, and he's going to turn it into their weakness and their vulnerability. If you look down at verse 10, he says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, If Beth la Afra, roll yourself in the dust, go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir in shameful nakedness, the inhabitant of Zaanan do not, well, does not escape, the lamentation of Beth Ezel, he will... Take it from you, its support these these places, these names that speak of pleasantness, that speak of stability of standing, he says those things will be exposed, those things will be undone. basically the opposite will happen. all their assets are going to be leveraged against them and turned into liabilities that 's the point of the opening verses here. Only God can do that for there is no one like God, and he tolerates no counterfeits as we move into chapter two. Micah takes specific aim at the leaders of Israel. He says, "Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it. For it is in their power." This this reminds us of Naboth, how he stole, and and Ahaz, and how he stole Naboth's vineyard, and. He says, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. These are leaders who are extorting and, ex- and taking from those entrusted to their care. They rob a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. But God says, you scheme, I will scheme right back. Two can play at your game. In verse 3, he says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks. And you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day, they will take up against you a taunt, speaking of these leaders whom God judges, and utter a bitter lamentation and say, We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our field. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. God says, I will Have the final word. God always has the final word. There is no one like God, and he tolerates no counterfeits. In Chapter three, Micah goes after the prophets. It's not just the political leaders who have turned away from God, the religious leaders have done the same thing. In verse five of chapter three, he says, Thus says the Lord, concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace, but against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. Everything is upside down. That's what he says in verse 5. Something that they ought to be upset about, they're not upset about. Something that, that someone is innocent, they declare war against them. Everything is upside down. And in the end, there will be no one like God and he tolerates no counterfeits. Verse 12, therefore... He says, on account of you, Zion will be a plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountains of the temple will become high, become high places of a forest. So, so the, as, Micah, as we come to chapter four, then Micah says there's a time coming after God cancels all the counterfeit rulers and counterfeit prophets when he will start over. When the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, Jerusalem will be reestablished and it will become a place for both spiritual and physical blessing to the nations. This is the kingdom restored. And we see that pictured in the beginning of chapter 4. He says, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and even the word of the Lord from from Jerusalem. As we mentioned last night, the first three chapters as a whole are essentially a vote of no confidence in God's people and in their leaders. But he says there's a day coming when all will be made whole, when all will be made stable and blessing and everlasting righteousness will come in. The question we asked and answered, started to answer last night is how do we get there? How do we get there? This world is full of counterfeits. The story of Israel and the nations and of our lives is one of failed state after failed state, failed leader after failed leader. How do we get from the kingdom fallen to the kingdom restored? That's the question. And Micah says, God must do it. God will rescue you and he will deliver you. Verse 10, the Lord will redeem you of chapter four from the hands of your enemies. He says, I'm going to discipline you for a season. You have been unfaithful. You have not trusted in me. You have been rebellious against my law. But I will rescue you, and I will judge those who judge you. So God tolerates no competitors. He tolerates no counterfeits. And he will send a new king. And this new king won't be like all the counterfeits and the imposters that have fallen short. And led the people astray. He says, I will give you a new king, a righteous king, and he will rescue you. And we see him introduced to us in our text this morning in chapter 5 and verse 2. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You want to know how it all works out? How do you get from judgment to res- resolution from the kingdom fallen to the kingdom of God restored? It's all going to work out. We said through one true king. And that king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And so this little town of Bethlehem promises to be the place where God will raise up one who will ultimately fulfill God's kingdom purposes, every detail about him all the way down to the place of his birth matters and proclaims to the highest heaven that not only is there no one like the triune God, but there is specifically no one like his son, Jesus. And this, we said, is what Christmas is meant to communicate to the world. This is why we worship on Christmas. Christmas is about God and his unyielding commitment to declaring that there is no one like himself and particularly, there is no one like his son. And Micah gives us three reasons in this one little verse why there is no one like the Lord Jesus. And by way of review, last night we looked at just the first in the beginning of verse 2. And that is that Jesus, is this Messiah, is the pinnacle of God's saving plan. He is the pinnacle of God's saving plan. Micah mentions Bethlehem here. But as for you, Bethlehem, this points the reader and you and I to the house of David, the Davidic dynasty, the Davidic covenant. And in that covenant, God promised David a number of things, but one thing in particular stands out in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 11. God promised David David, that the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you, and when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promised David, That one of his descendants would come forth and inherit an eternal kingdom that would be established eternally. The point is, if you are the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, you fulfill all of God's promises. That's the point. The Davidic dynasty is the key to fulfilling God's kingdom plan. But even from the beginning with David, what do we see? Failure, sin, rebellion, And God is going to bring the Davidic dynasty to nothing. He says that in chapter 1 and verse 15. He says the glory of Israel is going back to Adullam, to the place where David was on the run from Saul, the place of defeat, the place of of basically no sovereignty, no power. And God says, I'm going to grind that house to dust. And when I get done with it, the Davidic dynasty, with all their failed kings, will be a smoldering ash heap. They'll appear like chaff that the wind blows away, but only for a season, for a season. But, and there's a hard pivot in verse two, as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, it will not always be this way because of Bethlehem. You say, what's so significant about that? You need someone to reboot the kingdom plan. You need someone to reboot this kingdom, you know, control, alt, delete, Restart this thing. And if you want to reboot that kingdom plan, you have to go back to the beginning. And where was David born? We know from the scriptures he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. You have to go back to where it all started. And so what Micah does in verse 2, in this stark contrast, is take us back to the cradle of David's line, to Bethlehem. And he shows us that the son of David will usher in a new beginning ultimately restoring God's kingdom on earth. In other words, the last David must be like the first. He will resurrect the line of David, he will revive it, and he will see God's kingdom purposes brought to completion. He is the pinnacle of God's salvation plan for human history. And of course, who is this person, this man from Bethlehem, this last David, this righteous king? We read about him this morning in our scripture reading. He is none other than the Lord Jesus. And when the angels appeared to Mary and God revealed through his heavenly messenger that Jesus is the long-promised king foretold by the prophets like Micah and Isaiah and others, They said, Behold, this is what the angel said to Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He is the fulfillment of the promise, the fulfillment of the promise given to David There is no one like the Lord Jesus. He is the pinnacle of God's saving plan. Secondly, though, not only is he the pinnacle of God's saving plan, he is the promised one by God's sovereign power. He is the promised one. Jesus is the promised one by God's sovereign power. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Why does Micah say Bethlehem and why does he add this clarify this this modifier Ephrathah and and why does he say what he says there in the second line? Well, it designates where both David and the first David and the last David are born, where they begin their earthly lives. When you think about Bethlehem, what do you think of? You think about the hymn, oh little town of Bethlehem, and that's exactly what you're supposed to think. That's exactly cuz there's nothing in Bethlehem. It's n- there's nothing there. Micah is trying to get that point across. This little town of Bethlehem is insignificant. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. They couldn't even furnish a military unit. That's why he says there that they were too little to be among the clans. The adjective rendered small or too little, it emphasizes not just quantity but quality. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it occurs in connection with that which is weak, that which is despised, that which is lowly. When I went to college my freshman year, the first week, they, they have these um, breakout groups. You get to know your fellow incoming freshmen. It was a small school. And um, they ask you, one of the first things they do to break the ice is they ask you, where did you come from? Where, where, where do you hail from? And I remember there was one girl in our group, and she said she was from frostproof florida it's like frostproof <gasps> never even knew it existed i'd lived in florida most of my life there's some places in life you think wow that's cool and then you then there's frostproof <laughs> bethlehem is like frostproof it's Nowheresville. it's nothingburg it, it, is that a liability Not at all. Micah says, Bethlehem, it's one of your greatest assets. God chose you, Bethlehem, specifically to showcase that when he raises up his righteous king, the king who will redeem sinners, the king who will restore the kingdom, it is because he accomplished it and no one else. It's because of God's sovereign power and because of God's sovereign purposes and God's sovereign choosing. This is yet another example of how the Lord delights to choose the weak and the despised and the lowly of this world to shame that which is wise and that which is strong in the world. It ensures beyond a shadow of a doubt that all the glory goes where it rightfully belongs and that is on God. God says, I'm going to bring this one forth from Bethlehem to make it crystal clear to the world that he is who he is, not because of where he's from and not because of who he knows, but because he's from Bethlehem, but because of my sovereign power. There is no one like God, and consequently, there is no one like his son, Jesus, Isaiah, prophesying around the same time in chapter 42, God, he says this, this is speaking for God, of his son. The father says, he is my chosen one. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, the one in whom my soul delights. God backs his son 100%. I think we take Jesus way too lightly. Some people say, I'll think about him later. I'll deal with him later. When I get older, after I do this and that and the other thing, do you know who you're dealing with? Do you understand? He is the one whom God endorses. He, what do you think will happen to you when you disregard the one whom God has poured out his favor upon? It is destruction. He is preeminent, and we must humble ourselves before him. There is a third reason in this text why there is no one like the Lord Jesus. And that is, he is the potentate with God's superior pledge. He is the potentate with God's superior pledge. He is the pinnacle of God's saving plan. He is the promised one by God's sovereign power. And this one is a ruler. That's what we mean by potentate. He's a a ruler. It's a generic word here in verse 2. He will be a ruler in Israel. It's just a generic word for ruler. One who reigns, one who has authority. You say, well, so what? What does that matter? Notice Micah says, this one will go forth to be a ruler for me, speaking for God. So he's not just any ruler. He's God's ruler. He's unique. This ruler is unlike all the others because he will be God's climactic ruler. In what way is he unique? Well, he tells us his goings forth are from long ago. Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, but let me tell you, that's not where he began. That's not where he began. He came from long ago. You could actually translate faithfully that, that phrase from long ago. You could translate that everlasting. His goings forth are from everlasting. When there's no qualifier on the word as there is And there's no qualifier here. It just keeps looking back and back and back in the original language. It's used in Habakkuk 1 verse 12 and Psalm 74 verse 2 to speak of God who has no beginning. So this ruler is like that. In Micah 5 in verse 4, he says this ruler will be a shepherd over Israel. And then later on in chapter 7 in verse 14, God is the one who is shepherding. Again, showing that this king is none other than God himself. They are one and the same. How can God ultimately endorse anyone, pledging that he rules for him eternally, unless that person is God? He was born in time, yet he stands outside of time. He came into the world, but yet he exists outside of the world. You can't be a mere man and do that. Only only the God-man can do that. No earthly king in Israel, past, present, or future, could ever fit the description that Micah gives here in this text at the end of verse 2. He is the king who is God with God's superior pledge. He rules, God says, for me. So there is no one like God, and specifically there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of verse two, Micah says that Jesus is going forth are from days of eternity. This points the reader back; it brings it would have brought the reader back to the glory days of Israel, the days of David and Solomon, when Israel had rest from all her enemies, prosperity abounded, when other nations came and brought tribute to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to honor them. But at this stage in Israel's history, the monarchy is an embarrassment. The kingdom is an embarrassment. But from Bethlehem, he says, will arise a new beginning that will result in the extension of God's kingdom throughout the earth. The reference to the king's origins marks him out as a supernatural figure, Similar to the description of the king in Isaiah in verse 9. You see it posted on our banners here. God's anointed one is called mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He's talking about the same same person. This king will provide rest. He will provide sustenance and peace for God's weary people. We see that in verse 3. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, and then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great. To the ends of the earth, this one will be our peace. This again parallels the work of of the king in Isaiah 9, 1-7, he will eliminate fear. We see in Isaiah's writing, hunger, and all every other obstacle toward renewal. Peace, prosperity, plenty, wisdom, justice. Those were all things that people thought about when they thought about the kingdom under David, the kingdom under Solomon. But it just pales in comparison to what awaits God's kingdom when it is fully and finally established. And Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises made some 700 years before his miraculous virgin birth. And Matthew concurs with this interpretation and uses Jesus' birth in David's hometown as one of the starting points for claiming in his gospel that Jesus is king. So the specificity of the word of God by Micah keeps the promise from being vague or kind of metaphorical and and sort of loosely interpreted. It has to be. An actual person will come at a specific time to God's people and to vindicate the remnant's faith. We see that promised. We see it fulfilled. Jesus resolves everything. He resolves everything. He is the pinnacle of God's saving power. He is the promised one by God's excuse me, saving plan, the promised one by God's sovereign power and the potentate with God's superior pledge. There is no one like God and there is no one like his son, Jesus Christ. And whatever or whomever you're trusting in this morning, in this world, I promise you, they will eventually fail you. They They will fall short, but not Jesus, not Christ, he will never desert you, nor will he ever forsake you, the scripture says. And so we have all these little ornaments on our tree. You know, one says joy and peace and faith and hope and love. Jesus is all of that. Jesus is all of it. Jesus is our joy. He's the one who promises in John 17 that our joy will be full in him. He is our peace. Romans 5 verse 1 says that, We have peace with God, having been justified by faith. We have faith in him. Believe on me, he says. Hope. He is the one that has anchored our hope to. Jesus is our hope. And of course, Jesus is the one who loved us with an everlasting love. He came from heaven to earth. He died in the place of sinners. He rose again, and he's alive today. I saw a fascinating, helpful quote this morning. Just saw this. Another pastor had mentioned this. He says, all Christ is, he has given to us so that all that he has, he can share with us. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is God in human flesh. All that belongs to him belongs to the one who is united to him by faith. I pray that you're one of those individuals this morning. And if you're not, he says that you can trust in him. You can bow the knee of your heart. You can give your life to him and to follow him and trust in him and not yourself. You can see him for who he is. Understand that he's coming back to to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. We don't know the day or the hour. And so we need to be ready. We need to be like those who have their lamps trimmed and ready. All that Christ is, he's given to us so that all that he has, he can share with us. And that's really what we want to anchor our hearts and minds to this Christmas day. And we celebrate God's triumphing over sin and darkness and extending to us his love by making us his beloved sons and daughters on the basis of faith and faith alone. What a blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. You loved us with such a great love, a love that knows no boundaries, a love that transcends heaven and earth. We know your kingdom plan is right on track. It looks like it's not. It is. And your past faithfulness indeed is gives us confidence in our future that your faithfulness is unimpeachable. We pray, Lord, that there's any heart here this morning that doesn't know you has not bowed the knee to trust you and and that trust is an evidence by fruitful life I pray that you would draw them to yourself and Lord we know that you welcome those who come with broken and contrite hearts who is like God Micah says who pardons iniquity all of this is possible because you're a God who forgives sin And so you are absolutely holy and unapproachable, and yet in your Son, you are absolutely humble and approachable. May all who need to come to you and those who have trust in you this morning, may they find comfort and joy, hope, may their faith persevere, and may they fill their hearts up in your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.